Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. When we think about how our brains work, while we all have them, we aren't really familiar with what's going on in them. We like to think it's conscious, logical processing that we're in charge of our brains and the choices that we make at any given time. And really, your subconscious is driving 99% of what your brain is doing at any given time, both for you and for your customers. And the conscious and subconscious don't really speak the same language. And so when you sit down and you're thinking you're planning, you know, a new marketing promotion or determining what people should want or what they should do, you're using that conscious part of your brain and trying to communicate to other conscious brains, but that's not where the buying is taking place. Hey, Melina, welcome to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. This is going to be awesome. I, this is one of my favorite topics talking about like psychology and consumer behavior, but I want to start with just like, how did you get into the space and how did you get into the marketing space, especially this focus, like consumer behavior space? My undergrad is actually in business administration with a focus in marketing. And so I did work in marketing and brand strategy for quite some time. But when I got my undergrad there I remember there was just, you know, like one section of one book in one class had this little tiny bit on buying psychology, why people do the things they do, why they buy the things they buy. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. This is so awesome. And, you know, decided then, you know, someday when I go back and get a master's, like I'm not doing an MBA, I wanted to get a master's in this. And. I spent the better part of 10 years calling universities and asking them about a program like this. And they all said it doesn't exist. That's not a thing. We don't have that. Sorry, I guess, sort of. Uh, and and saying, you know, you can actually you can build a program yourself if you want to, which is like, well, if I know what I need to study, I don't need to pay you. That seems silly. So I was working in in industry. So I started at um I worked in a marketing and advertising PR agency for a little while, started a business, and then ended up running a marketing department for a credit union. While I was in that space, I was part of, like, the best way to explain it, it's kind of like a fellowship of people within the credit union industry that had to do with innovation and coming up with new ideas and design thinking and things like that. And we were at an event. They brought in some people from the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, which is their behavioral economics wing. And they were talking about the research that they were doing. And I realized that this was the thing I had been looking for for a decade and kind of cornered them and made them tell me all about the magic of their world and found myself a master's program in behavioral economics and in that process, realized that all the stuff that was so clear to me about how this applies to marketing and brand strategy and communication and change management and pricing and goals for business, just nobody was really talking about at that time. And so I ended up starting my podcast, The Brainy Business, and 
it was the first of its kind really in the world. And so people were finding it and have been excited and wanting more. And that just kind of led to lots more conversation and books and, and all of that on the topic. That's so awesome. Just for people who don't understand, like, like there's economics, but what is behavioral economics? What is the difference? Traditional economics assumes logical people making rational choices in everything that they do. And because we're all human, we know that's not really the world that we live in. You know, you know that you should exercise and eat right and you end up, you know, binge watching Netflix and eating Cheetos or something <laughs> like that instead. So what you had is that traditional economic models weren't accurately predicting the behavior of what people would do. So it's like what you think they should do versus what they actually do. And so over time, you had psychologists and economists, uh, neuroscientists working together on research or entering into one another's fields to try and see if there are common threads that could be used to more accurately predict behavior. And thankfully, there are. And that's how the field of behavioral economics was born. It's like, you say, if economics and psychology had a baby, you would have behavioral economics. That's hilarious. That's a good analogy. I would love to go into like why marketers should care about behavioral economics. <laughs> uh, all the reasons, actually. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it, it really is understanding the psychology of why people buy. That's the kind of, I guess, a tagline with my show and knowing what drives behavior. So when we think about how our brains work, while we all have them, we aren't really familiar with what's going on in them. We like to think it's conscious, logical processing that we're in charge of our brains and the choices that we make at any given time. And really, your subconscious is driving 99% of what your brain is doing at any given time, both for you and for your customers. And the conscious and subconscious don't really speak the same language. And so when you sit down and you're thinking you're planning, you know, a new marketing promotion or determining what people should want or what they should do, you're using that conscious part of your brain and trying to communicate to other conscious brains. But that's not where the buying is taking place. There's a really great analogy uh, done by a psychologist out of NYU that is this idea of you can think of your brain like a person riding an elephant. The conscious logical piece being the rider, the, it has a plan, know where you want to go, it can see out onto the horizon obstacles in the way, like this is where we're going, we're good. Uh, it doesn't, though, speak the same language as the elephant. And if you can't push or pull or logic the elephant into going where you want it to go if it wants to sit down or run in another direction you know you're kind of stuck behind this six ton behemoth in the way so you need to properly motivate and incentivize the elephant and work with its ways of moving and communicating instead of trying to speak to other writers so when you can work with the elephant of people that are buying and with those rules of the subconscious brain, it just makes it much, much easier to make sure you're speaking to the right people and they're more likely to convert on sales easier. Yeah, that's awesome. Like one of my favorite sayings, and I don't know who actually originated, but it's like people buy with emotions then justify with logic. And mm -hmm. is, I think this is what you're talking about is so true. Is like 
so many impulse buys are not like very logical. They're like, oh, I love this or like, oh, this is a deal or, oh, this is great pricing or blah, blah, blah. It's not like, it's when the emotional state they're in there and that's hard to predict with like economics, that emotional state that a human is at that moment when they're making a purchase. I do a whole bunch of stuff on pricing strategy. I teach a class on it and I have an episode that's the truth about pricing. Pricing is never about price. All the stuff that happens before the price is more important than the price itself. And I have an example, a framework I call, it's not about the cookie. So if you imagine we're walking down the street, having a great conversation, and all of a sudden there's this luscious scent in the air, you know, that we're just sort of like, ooh, what is that? It's a little bit, it's sweet, a hint of salt. It's like, you can tell it's chocolatey and what? Oh, it's, it's cookies, right? We can smell chocolate chip cookies are there and we're still talking, but it's like cartoon characters. Our noses are leading us down the street as we're trying to find the source of this amazing scent. Then we get in front of the the shop and you can see there's a line and we go stand in the line and they offer a free sample and say, you know, today only it's buy three, get one free. And, you know, before we know it, uh, we're walking out the door each eating a cookie and with a bag for later. If we go to another example, we're walking down the same street, same conversation. Someone comes up to us and shoves a flyer in our faces and it's like, hey, look, like, today I'm selling cookies. And, you know, if you buy four, you only pay for three of them. And like, look, I've got samples. You're like, guy get out of here right like i don't want this at all how rude are you like i would never eat those then we start having our conversation being about bad sales examples we've been through one-upping each other by the time we get to the store we see the line outside smell the cookies we're so annoyed you know that maybe it's we're pitying the people in line looking up on yelp so we can write a review about how terrible they are and that we would never buy from them because of their bad tactics could be exactly the same cookies in both scenarios. And actually all the same things happened, just it really in a reverse order. But in the first scenario, they could have been $3 a cookie. They could have been 50 cents in the second one. We were really wanting those first cookies and would have justified why down the line to ourselves of why we had to get them or why we wanted them in that moment. We would also, even if they were like giving out free cookies, we probably wouldn't have taken them in the other example. So again, price isn't about price. It's all the stuff that happens before the price matters more than the price itself when it comes to buying. What are some things that businesses could do to like, that are like little things that could affect like how a person perceives pricing? The first piece there is that the scent of the cookies is our priming example. So we are very much drawn by um, our senses pulling us in. When I talked about how 99% of what your brain is doing is subconscious, it's using rules of thumb to evaluate huge amounts of data to determine what's important to you in that moment and flag the conscious you know, to move forward or, or not. And so the sense imagery, we're constantly deciding like, yes, I like that. No, I don't like that. And you want to work with those things and you can be drawing people in. And it doesn't just have to be that you have something amazing baked good. Uh, but, you know, for myself, for you, really, you know, the podcast is 
a scent of the cookies that I'm giving out into the world, which is also a reciprocity piece. Uh, you're enticing people to be able to get a little sense of the information of what you would be giving if they were to buy from you. We also have a lot, again, with imagery that can be influencing whether someone is more likely to want to be buying or not. So there was a study that was done where you had people working in a group dynamic. And in one case, there happened to be a briefcase on the table and the other a backpack that was in view. And nobody noticed it. But when they looked at who was more cooperative, the people that were in the backpack room were cooperative and you had more combative people in the briefcase room because of the literal associations that our brains make with imagery. And so really the images you put on your website or out in your social channels or how you are communicating information, really everything matters, even on a very small, small scale like that could be tipping in one direction or another. One other concept and the one it's the first I introduce in my book is on framing. So how you say something matters much more than what you are saying. In the case of the cookie scenario, we had buy three, get one free. Our brains tend to think that things that rhyme and are more concise are more truthful and honest. We like them better uh, when they're short, sweet, and rhyming is you know a benefit there. In the second scenario, I was like, oh, if you buy four cookies, you only pay for three of them. It's very clunky and weird. And so you kind of go, something's off with that. My favorite framing example is if you were to imagine you're going to the grocery store to buy some ground beef. We'll say it's spaghetti night tonight. Uh, so you go to pick some up. There are two stacks. Uh, one, they're basically identical. The only difference is one is labeled as 90% fat free. And the other is 10% fat. Which one do you want to buy? Which one feels better to you? Across the world, I've given this example to thousands and thousands of people. Overwhelmingly, everyone says 90% fat free is the one that they want that sounds better to them. Logically, we know it's the same. 90% fat free is 10% fat. Obviously, that's how those go together. But it doesn't feel the same. And even if you know that, you still are kind of inclined to get from the 90% fat-free pile, you know, where it's like, ooh, that's such a great healthy decision. And 10% fat's like, yikes, I haven't been to the gym in like two years. Where's that going to go? So it feels very different. And that impacts whether you're going to buy or not. So in a business, knowing, you know, people aren't buying, it doesn't mean that your product is wrong. It doesn't mean your pricing is necessarily wrong. You might just be talking 10% fat. And if you were to reframe and say that a little bit differently as a 90% fat free, it could be more enticing for people to buy from you. Yeah, that's so, so interesting because one's like has a bunch of positive to like something that you really want. And one's like, okay, it's 10%, but it has fat next to it. So it's like, oh, like really that might be, sounds a lot, maybe in my head. It sounds. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. Also, I think you say something about like, now there's 90 or 10, but like the ending of like numbers and like how that could affect well, how people buy. Cause like some people, for example, I mean, you see this with real estate agents all the time. Oh my guy, watch a million dollar listing. And they're like, oh, if you do the price is like 30, 29.995 instead of 30, if you get 30, you might have buyers who are 
don't want to get into the 30 million price, but even though that's basically 30 million. So it's mm-hmm. kind of funny. I'm, I'm interested to know like how that works and why that works. We do get, and it doesn't have to be in the, in the millions of uh, dollars mm-hmm. on that to, <laughs> to work. You know, you see that with gas prices and uh, food items and stuff where they'll be, you know, four ninety nine instead of $5 or whatever that happens to be. So, mm-hmm. In general, when you look at your own pricing, so yes, we do tend to round down in that way. And when you see four ninety nine, it feels more like four than five, even though it shouldn't. It does in a lot of ways. Consumers get wise to some people are like, no, I don't fall for that. And you know, some more often than you realize, it it does influence, especially when you can reduce a number. So. The difference from 1100 to 1099 is not as great as going from $1,000 to $999, you know, going where you lose a full digit and the, that leftmost number goes down is going to be more impactful. When you're determining your own pricing, if you have something that is a gift or a luxury type of an item... Uh, people have been shown to prefer the rounded pricing or those higher numbers. So when we think about something like wine, m- most people aren't looking to buy discount wine. You know, you'd rather pay $42 for a bottle than 39 because discount cheap wine isn't something that happens a lot. Uh, when you asked people about a camera and explain to them that they were going to use this as something that was fun for a vacation that was for you know something they were wanting to do and in another scenario saying this is something you have to have for school or for work it's a need they wanted to pay more when they were told it was a fun gift purchase than when it was for a work purpose that they wanted discounted prices and to pay less so again the way you frame something has a difference on how someone will feel about paying for that particular item. If you are going to be associated with the discount where you're going to be below the 500, we'll say, so you're going to go down to be 499, 497, 495. Once you round it down, it doesn't really matter which number you end with, um, according to the research. So you can pick whichever number you like the most. Really, you would want to decide, am I a 500 or am I 49975, what have you? I love that. It's kind of funny. The luxury thing is very interesting, too, because I just remember going ring shopping and like one carat flat. And if you get 1.01 or like 0.99, like it's cheaper than like the the one, but people just want that like perfect, like one carat or two carat, but it's like not much of a difference. Like it's like, okay, like 0.01 is more, but they rather pay for the one because it's like a full carat. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. It, yeah, it's interesting. And if you think about in pricing too, a dollar is not a dollar in every direction. So if you if you were coming to buy something from me, and it was five hundred and one dollars. Like, ugh, like really nitpicky. It feels like I am nickel and diming you. And where I was just talking about priming, right? That you think 
there's something off about this person. 500 feels better than 501 and, you know, 499 in that case. But I will have, let's say, so if you had something you said, well, I, you know, I have to do, you know, it's like $512 to hit the expenses that I need to be making the right profit. As someone who's purchasing, $512, again, feels very mm, like something's off. Whereas if it was $525 or $550, it feels better, like you're not taking advantage of something, even though I'm paying more. It's a, a strange little quirk, but you don't feel like you're being taken advantage of with the, like I said, nickel and diming to get up to that $512 or whatever that is. That's crazy how like, the brain just like associates like things as like, and I, I even like me, you talking about it, I could see myself like saying like, wait, there's something's off of that price, even though I know it's not, right. um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. Um, I really want to go into like one topic that you said that is pretty interesting to me is like the actual perception of like words like words are perceived and like just changing like a word. I know you said fat free versus but that's more number, but I'm just saying like a word has feelings associated to it. So like, what are some things you recommend to companies about like just simple, like framing of words in their copy or stuff like that? When you think about a company like Apple, just to get into priming again, there was a different study that was done that they had people watching a video about something that was unrelated. And then there was a micro moment flash of either an Apple logo or an IBM logo at a span of time that was so little that people couldn't really consciously recognize that they had been shown this logo, whichever one they were shown. And then they worked on a project after the fact and the those who were shown the apple logo were more innovative and creative in what they worked on than those who saw the ibm logo and if you think in the case of apple like and with anyone's brand who has a strong enough brand that people could see your logo for a flash a barely not not a full second and have it impact their behavior because they've been primed based on what your company stands for and what you mean to them. There are not many brands that have that, though people were more honest when they saw a Disney logo than when they saw an E, like entertainment logo, similarly, right? So when you have a really strong brand that stands for something, you can then reinforce that continually. And if you ask, like for your company, if you were only going to be one thing and people would know this is what you are about, you are what, and you choose what your word is, you're able to then be reinforcing that continually so that those associations come up when they think of you. And so because of our brains being very literal in associations to a name like Apple, when I'm at the grocery store and I see apples, I can't tell my brain like, no, that's not the technology company brain. We don't make that association anymore. It's constantly reinforcing Apple in my brain. And the word choice of even like innovative and creative or open to change, those are very different paths when you expand out and think about what those words mean. 
And so I recommend with clients, you know, we look at taking a thesaurus and seeing like what words are associated with this word. Do we like those? And if we were to go look up imagery for trust is very different than even what you might get for honesty or support or flexibility or whatever you want to be about. But narrowing it down to something and then putting all your eggs in that particular basket to reinforce it. And then you can get the whole team on board and you can be priming for that internally and with customers. I think you you had a, there was something about like top five wording mistakes businesses make. Um, mm-hmm. What are the top five wording mistakes that business make? Yeah. Uh, so that's episode two of the podcast, just so for anybody who wants to get that. And then, so you know, it's thebrainybusiness.com slash then the number two or five when I talked about pricing. But it's, you know, you're too if I just say them as you're too vague, you're too literal, you're too confusing, the too boring, those, you know, we get into those and expand on them there and the concepts that come into play. I'll give an example that's related to uh, a framing piece that's in the too literal space. So there's a nail salon near me. And when I had moved, I was needing to find a new place to get my nails done. And everyone really had recommended this particular location, but something about it didn't feel right. And I realized they had a big sign out front of their building that said, and this was in 2017 or 2018. And they had a big sign that said they were voted best in the South Sound 2009, 2010, 2011. And you might think as the business, like, that's good. That's true. And nothing has changed. We still won those awards. You know, we should be able to celebrate them and share that. Uh, But for everybody who's driving by and you go, well, what what happened? Right. It's been seven years since you won something like something must be wrong. It feels off. The information is still true, but because the context around you has changed, it doesn't have the same positive impact. And if you were to reframe that and instead say voted best in the South Sound three years in a row, it feels completely different. And it could have been it has more impact on you than having those very specific years. Um, you know, so that's an example of things where you feel like you have to get into the nitty gritty and people want everything and they need to know all the details and big specifics But often that can actually be something that starts to repel people when you overshare too much information that's too specific and it's not supporting the cause, it's uh, making it worse. I know that something in your book was about like how people are very habit driven. And I'm just wondering like, how as like a business or a marketer, could you like just pattern disrupt a habit? Like I'm... Like, for example, going to a grocery store and I just kind of like black out because I just go and I know what I'm going to get and I'm not going to go buy anything new or like scrolling on social media or like these habits that people do every day. How does a marketer disrupt these habits? So if you're not the market leader, then you would have a very different strategy than if you are the market lead. And so, like you said, where you need to disrupt the buying habit of somebody who just gets Cheerios, you know, how do you get them to think about you as a breakfast option if you're something else? And so there are many strategies and and tactics for things, but looking 
outside of the very myopic space that you may tend to think about of like, oh, I'm competing like Cheerios, uh, you know, is who I'm competing against. And so I need to be a yellow box like them or I need to be a different like a better version of that is not often if you're trying to be kind of like the knockoff version of something that they're already getting. That's always going to kind of be a losing scenario to be in that's a that's a really hard thing to fight and then you end up competing on price and as we know it's not really about price uh, but looking at how you might be if people who eat cheerios like to slice bananas and put bananas on their cereal you could then look at how your cereal could be next to the bananas in the produce space so if someone's picking up bananas and they see your cereal uh, as something that is like recommended that you get it at a with a coupon when you buy bananas right now or near the milk or something uh, that could be a benefit even thinking of peanut butter when you think of peanut butter you want jelly right they they go together uh people that when they started making refrigerated cookie dough that you put next to the milk that's a nudge of where someone is likely to think oh yeah i like that but i wasn't necessarily coming for cookies but that sounds good as something i might want and so you know shaking things up and seeing how you might be able to be a part of the conversation at a different point in the conversation instead of competing right in the moment where it feels like you need to can be an opportunity to upend something that's a habitual buy like that one thing I also know, and there's a cool term in your book that you talk about, like behavioral baking. What does that mean for companies? Behavioral baking is the kind of way that the whole book breaks down and how I talk about applying behavioral economics in general. So if you decided that you wanted to be a baker, you're going to open a bakery uh, but unfortunately, you've never actually really baked anything before. You know, the first thing that you would need to do is you'd want to figure out what the ingredients are and have some knowledge of how they work on their own. So being able to know, you know, eggs, sugar, butter, flour, they can combine to make all sorts of things. And you want to know what they do so you don't end up with like three cups of sugar and a tablespoon of flour for something real gross that you're going to end up with on the other side. Uh, and then you also need to have a plan of what you're trying to make, because, again, you can't just throw all those ingredients in a bowl and hope that they come out as brownies on the other side. That's uh, probably not going to work that way. So you need a plan and then you're probably going to follow a recipe, maybe start with like a box cake mix as you go into the process. And even if it comes out and it's a little bit dense or it's not quite right, uh, you're able to realize that like you can go look up and say, well, what might I do differently next time? I need to incorporate more air in when I'm whipping this or cook it at a lower temperature or whatever. You wouldn't say, you know, I tried baking once and it didn't work. Like baking's not real, right? That would be a ridiculous thing to say. Yet we do that in business all the time, right? So you say, oh, I tried Instagram once and I didn't get a million followers overnight. Instagram isn't real. <laughs> like it does, that doesn't really work for people, right? So similarly with looking to apply behavioral economics, my book walks through a process of introducing 16 concepts of which there are, are hundreds. I picked 
a top 16 from having worked with businesses in this area for a long time that I think are most relevant and applicable to get started. And each, you know, you get like, this is what framing is and how you might use it. This is priming, reciprocity, anchoring that goes through those 16. Your ingredients then starts kind of giving you some recipes where you can start combining them together and knowing that it is kind of a lifestyle of testing and trying things and doing little tests as you go instead of, um, you know, to not say, you know, I tried behavioral economics once and it didn't do what I expected it to do. It's not real, but, you know, it's kind of trying to avoid that and know that the concepts are true and there are options to try and apply them and just being curious in the way that you apply is going to be helpful in ongoing small tests. You see it all the time with like, oh, Facebook ads don't work because I tried it and it didn't work, but they didn't like test a bunch of things or they didn't try new things. Like it's kind of like, sometimes it's like someone's like first time baking, like you said, or it's like, oh, I want to create a whole new recipe. Like, and I've never done that before. So like, obviously the first time you're not going to, might not have the best tasting recipe. Um, right you haven't done it before so you just have to do do it that's why like experienced markers in that field will know like oh it does work because i've seen it work just like an experienced baker like what you're saying which is i love that like analogy that you you just put out there one other thing i wanted to ask is like i know like everybody hears this this term but like social proof why don't you think like people use it like enough like i feel like they underutilize this like even though like they know like people buy because of people people that they like and if there's a full restaurant over the line out there it's like it's perceived as a better restaurant like why mm -hmm. do you think people just don't like utilize it enough in business yeah it's definitely in the the writer and the elephant uh, piece again, right? So if you think well, people should know that this is popular, people should know that that doesn't matter, people should be able to calculate in their own brain that this is the best value. Why would I have to tell them that? Or, you know, they shouldn't care that other people bought it. So it feels like you don't need to say it and that people could figure it out if they wanted to, or they could go do some other research and that would impact their decision. But because we are a herding species, we are very much influenced by what other people have done. And that social proof, be it in five-star reviews or, you know, if somebody follows you on Twitter and then you're trying to decide, mm, should I follow them back? What's the first thing that you look at? You look yeah, at how- Probably like follower account. Right. Yeah. And so this person has- 20 followers and the same person and like they followed you do you follow back versus someone who has 20,000 followers do you follow back without then you probably don't even look at anything else right the person with 20 followers you're like mm, like I don't need to be 20 like one of 21 that seems weird uh but being you know everybody else must know something you don't even look through their tweets before you decide if you're going to follow back and it could be lots and lots of bots and their mom or something that's following them but we just jump onto that 
particular bandwagon because it feels like, you know, 20,000 other people have done the due diligence for us. They must be following this person for a reason. And so, you know, some of the original research on social proof uh, done by Robert Cialdini is looking at, and he was on my podcast and was talking about restaurants in China and where they had when they wrote most popular on their items that actually were most popular, it increased the likelihood that people would order those by between 13 and 20 percent. And so adding two words, most popular, if that would make it so your most popular items are 20 percent more likely to be chosen and you can invest in making sure that those are also your most profitable items, why would you not do that, right? But that only had an impact on people who were new to the restaurant. So if people already know what they want, like, I don't care that other people like that. But when we're in an uncertain situation, when we're unsure of what to do, we haven't been here before, is where we're much more likely to lean on social proof and our herding instincts, as well as all these other biases, of which I talk about in my book and on the podcast, to make decisions. I wonder if you like framed or like most popular this week if that would change like the perception of like someone who hasn't has been there before but it's like oh and it's like this item i've never like really tried but it's enticing me to like do it because it's not like the most popular of all time it's like this week it's popular like why are people eating this this week right or even the chef special or if you think about like at um starbucks people get into a habit of the stuff that they buy there, but then they have the like barista drink of the week, right? So this is Melina's favorite drink, which is some random thing that's not on the menu that has extra special stuff. Like ask about Melina's special drink. And I go there, even though I get the same thing, might be like, well, like maybe I want to try something. You're obviously an expert because you work here. And so you're making a ridiculous amount of drinks. There must be something special about this. If this is the one that you buy, you know, I might be more likely to try something new. And if I'm getting a drink that's, you know, I don't know that there's anything you can get for only $3 at Starbucks these days, but that's when the one from the barista is one that has a bunch of extra flavoring and upgrades in it. So it's a $4.25 drink instead of the $3 drink I was getting. And then I try it because of that expertise, which is another form of social proof, and then decide to move forward. Uh, that can that could be something to nudge the behavior as well. Yeah, it's actually kind of crazy to think about how much like restaurants and food places like use like so many psychologic, like price anchoring and the most popular thing you just said. And then like some restaurants will have like this expensive meal that nobody will ever eat, but you know that it will bring up the prices of everything else because it looks cheaper relative to everything else. So it's just crazy that they do that. I want to give you the last like two or three minutes to talk about your podcast, your book, where could people find you? I mean, I want to learn more about this topic. I'm, just, I'm sure a lot of people want to learn more about this. So how can people find you? So the podcast is called The Brainy Business, as is my company. And the website is thebrainybusiness.com. like to keep it all easy for you there. And at thebrainybusiness.com, you can find the podcast. You can find information about my book. And depending on when you listen to this 
books. As I, I know we were talking about um, in advance, I just submitted the manuscript for my second book, which should be coming out this year as well. So you can also find my first book, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You on Amazon and anywhere else where you like to buy books. You can find me on pretty much all the socials as The Brainy Biz, B-I-Z. Cool. Keeping it easy for everybody. Yeah, definitely a must follow and a must listen and a must read. So everybody who's listening, I suggest you go do this. And this is like such an important topic in marketing that a lot of people don't spend enough time learning, I think. Like they learn about all the tactics and the how to do things, but they don't take enough time to know like why people are actually coming to my business and buying and what's making them make that decision. So thank you so much for joining. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.